Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. This is Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. We're here every Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern, 77 WABC Radio, making AM radio great again. Now, you can find us at 770 on the AM dial, or better yet, you can go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC app to your phone. That way, you won't miss any of the great programming that we have here at WABC. I'm talking about Sid Rosenberg uh, in the mornings. I'm talking about Rita Cosby, one of the most incisive veteran radio journalists in the country. Curtis Sliwa, who right now is beating Donald Trump in the arrest competition 80 to 4. Uh, Saturdays with Larry Kudlow. Uh, the man who quarterbacked Donald Trump's uh, uh, resurgence of the American economy as the White House uh, Counselor for Economic Affairs. Uh, Frank Morano's great, but sometimes offbeat show, The Other Side of Midnight. And then, of course, uh, there is Katz uh, and Cosby, uh, the great program featuring John Katzmatidis and Rita Cosby every day at five during the week. 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings, always with a great panel to break down that day's news with expert, expert opinion. You don't want to miss any of this, folks. And, of course, my friend Dominic Carter. Uh, you never want to miss any of this great talent here at WABC. I want to remind you that if you don't live in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, uh, then you can listen to this show and all of these great shows on WABCRadio.com uh, on the Internet. We are streaming worldwide, so don't miss any of it, folks. Download the app. The decision this past week uh, by Donald Trump to post his mugshot on his social media sites, uh, as well as using it, to debut his return to Twitter, now known as X, goes down as one of the most audacious moves in American political history. Donald Trump, ever the salesman, immediately put the image up on T-shirts, coffee mugs, flags, and banners, selling them to bring an extraordinary windfall to his presidential campaign. So in other words, the mugshot that was meant to humiliate him had the effect of standing as a symbol to the extraordinary injustice done to him. His campaign took in $20 million 
$7 million came in the first 24 hours after his uh, 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 arrest in Georgia, uh, and uh, $20 million in total, and I think that's low. Those figures were as of Friday. I first met Donald Trump in 1979 uh, when I was sent to New York State to organize the state for Governor Ronald Reagan's campaign for president. Uh, and uh, I was told that I would have five minutes with him. Uh, I wangled an appointment with him uh, through uh, the legendary lawyer, Roy Cohn. Uh, and I found Trump to be uh, uh, very interested in politics, expansive, uh, open-minded. Uh, but I immediately noticed that he had the size. I don't mean the physical size, although he's tall and broad-shouldered and very physically imposing. But the stature, the authenticity, uh, the gumption, the independence to be not just a great candidate for president, but to actually be a great president. Uh, I first urged him to seek the presidency as early as 1988. I remember it very well. We were sitting around his office. He was looking at the New York Times and he said, George Bush and Michael Dukakis, is this the best we can do? I said, no, there is somebody better. He said, well, who is it? We should get behind them. I said, well, I was thinking about you. And he said, and I quote, you're out of your mind. So I husbanded the dream of a Trump candidacy again in 2000 uh, when his billionaire friend, Ross Perot, tried to persuade him to run as a candidate of the Reform Party. By the way, he's very stickler. He's a stickler about this. He did not run in 2000. Uh, he looked very seriously at it. He spent about $25 million exploring it. But he ultimately determined that you could only be elected as a Republican or a Democrat. There's no doubt that he liked the attention. These were in the pre-internet days. Uh, but the idea of a Trump candidacy received an enormous amount of coverage and well, we know how Donald Trump feels about publicity. He did seriously look at the race in 2012, but he correctly concluded that he was late, and then he uh, regretted his endorsement of Mitt Romney. I remember very specifically after every debate, he would call me and say, what's wrong with this guy? He doesn't know when to go for the jugular. He was a different guy in every single debate. Then he called me, on New Year's Day of 2015, uh, pardon me, of 2012, right after the presidential campaign in which Barack Obama was reelected. And he said, you know, I should have run, and next time I'm going to run. And I said, well, I've heard this before. He said, no, I've actually uh, applied to the U.S. Patent Office to trademark the term, make America great again. So I knew that he was serious about running in 2016. Very few others did. I think Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who's kind of his Boswell because she covered him at the New York Post, at the New York Daily News, at Politico, uh, at the New York Times, I think she may be one of the few people who realized that he was serious. What people need to understand about Donald Trump is that he's an original. He's authentic. He's unique. He's a force of nature. Uh, he's not handled or managed or scripted. 
He's a true New Yorker. He does it his way. If I had a dollar for every person who told me if Trump would just stop tweeting, well, I'd be very, very wealthy. Or if I had a dollar for everybody who said to me, look, he should just say he was wrong about the COVID-19 vaccination, I can tell you right now, he's never going to say that. You see, Donald Trump doesn't have a reverse gear. It's just in his makeup. This past week, however, he put out an extraordinary uh, video in which he said that if they tried the same kind of pandemic lockdowns, mandatory vaccinations, mandatory wearing of masks, he would urge Americans not to comply. That is not to say that COVID-19 was not a real virus. It was. But it is also not to say that it was not weaponized in a Wuhan Chinese lab using American tax dollars, because we now know indisputably it was. And it was used uh, as the excuse uh, to bring mail-in ballots uh, into our electrical system in every single one of the crucial swing states. You see, they use the voting machines to determine how many extra votes you need to create, and that I'm convinced that they create those paper ballots, and we saw 300,000 ballots being dumped at 3 o'clock in the morning in the counting centers, for example, in Detroit. Look, uh, my friendship with Donald Trump has caused me both great pride and great pain. This is Roger Stone, and you're listening to The Roger Stone Show on WABC, and I'm talking about my friend of 45 years, Donald J. Trump. In 2019, I was arrested for allegedly lying to Congress uh, about Russian collusion that never actually happened. While I may have made misstatements uh, in my sworn testimony, which was voluntary, before the House Intelligence Committee, none of those statements were material. There was no Russian collusion to hide. The government produced no evidence of Russian collusion or WikiLeaks collaboration on my part. They jammed me up in an elaborate process crime in order to pressure me uh, into testifying falsely against President Donald Trump. And I refused to do that. Now, on the morning of uh, January 19th, uh, 29 heavily armed FBI agents stormed my home in full SWAT gear, brandishing fully automatic M4 assault weapons. Uh, they, uh, they surrounded my home to take me into custody for the first time nonviolent crime of lying to Congress under oath. You know, the way Hillary Clinton lied to them under oath, the way FBI Director James Comey lied under oath, the way CIA Director John Brennan lied under oath, the way Dr. Anthony Fauci lied to Congress under oath. This stunning pre-dawn raid shocked the American people. They arrested me as if I were some kind of drug kingpin. They knew that I did not possess a firearm. They also knew that I didn't have a valid passport. So the idea that I had to be taken down with a force larger than that that was used to take down bin Laden because I was a flight risk is absurd. And by the way, that was proven when I was arraigned 
four and a half hours, five hours later, and the government asked for no cash bond for my release on probation. You see, it was the media drumbeat that ultimately got Robert Mueller's thugs to charge me. That's how it works, you see. The fake news creates uh, a false narrative, and then they repeat it over and over and over again until it reaches critical mass. It takes on a life of its own. Once it takes on critical mass, it and is uh, reverberates in the echo chamber of the fake news media, well, then it becomes a fact uh, until some prosecutor decides that maybe you're really guilty of that which you're accused of. Some people begin to actually believe it. To this day, when I go out in public, there are people who still think I was, uh, uh, that I was convicted of treason and that I'm a Russian traitor, when in fact, no evidence whatsoever was ever produced against me uh, to prove that. It's a falsehood. Now, I must tell you, it's started all over again. For at least four nights on MSNBC, they have been doing hit pieces on me featuring their legal analyst, Ari Melber. This guy has an obsession with me that I really don't understand. He has repeatedly insisted that I am somehow the mastermind behind both the riot at the Capitol as well as the effort by Trump to delay the certification of the Electoral College votes uh, in the U.S. Senate. He also insists that I was somehow involved in Georgia. Let me be very clear. Mr. Melbourne knows these are lies. I was, according to Reuters, cleared by the senior level of the FBI uh, in August of 2021 for having nothing whatsoever to do to the riot with the riot at the Capitol. I never left the grounds of my hotel on the 6th. I know nothing about it. Any claim that I knew in advance about, participated in, or condoned any illegal action uh, on January 6th is categorically false. The folks at MSNBC know that Joshua James, who is one of the Oath Keepers who was involved in a security detail that volunteered to protect me on January 5th when I gave a perfectly legal speech to a fully permitted public event, has testified under oath in the administrative trial of New York City Police Officer Salvatore Greco that I knew nothing whatsoever about the Oath Keepers' plans and was uninvolved in their actions at the Capitol on January 6th. The folks at MSNBC also know that the Washington Post has reported that at least three people who were involved in the legal effort to stall or delay the certification of the electoral vote uh, in the uh, U.S. Senate said that I was not involved. Then we have this. During the January 6th hearings, which was a kabuki television theater production that was entirely one-sided and utilized uh, artificial intelligence enhanced videos to create deep fakes to put words in your mouth, there was this exchange between Congresswoman Lynn Cheney uh, and uh, a White House staffer by the name of Hutchison. 
The night before January 6th, President Trump instructed his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to contact both Roger Stone and Michael Flynn regarding what would play out the next day. Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that President Trump asked Mark Meadows to speak with Roger Stone and General Flynn on January 5th? That's correct. That is my understanding. And Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that Mr. Meadows called Mr. Stone on the 5th? I'm under the impression that Mr. Meadows did complete both a call to Mr. Stone and General Flynn the evening of the 5th. And do you know what they talked about that evening, Ms. Hutchinson? I'm not sure. Is it your understanding that Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Eastman, and others had set up what has been called, quote, a war room at the Willard Hotel on the night of the 5th? I was aware of that the night of the 5th. And do you know if Mr. Meadows ever intended to go to the Willard Hotel on the night of the 5th? Mr. Meadows had a conversation with me where he wanted me to work with Secret Service on a movement from the White House to the Bullard Hotel so he could attend the meeting or meetings with Mr. Giuliani and his associates in the war room. And what was your view as to whether or not Mr. Meadows should go to the Willard that night? I had made it clear to Mr. Meadows that I didn't believe it was a smart idea for him to go to the Willard Hotel that night. I wasn't sure everything that was going on at the Willard Hotel, although I knew enough about what Mr. Giuliani and his associates were pushing during this period. I didn't think that it was something appropriate for the White House Chief of Staff to attend or to consider involvement in. I made that clear to Mr. Meadows. Throughout the afternoon, he mentioned a few more times going up to the Willard Hotel that evening and then eventually dropped the subject the night of the 5th and said that he would dial in instead. So General Flynn has uh, appeared before this committee, uh, and when he appeared before our committee, he took the 5th. Let's briefly view a clip of General Mike Flynn taking the 5th Amendment. Uh, General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Can we have a minute? Yes. All right, we're back. Congressman Cheney, could you repeat the question, please? Yes. General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Is that, can I get a clarification? Is that a moral question or are you asking a legal question? I'm asking both. I said I, I said the fifth. Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? The fifth. You believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? Fifth. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? The fifth. So the folks uh, at MSNBC use a piece of videotape in which I correctly say that Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution grants to the state legislatures the authority to approve the electors that are sent to the Electoral College and that they do so on the basis of an examination of the results of the popular vote in their state. I said nothing about fake electors. It is perfectly legal to collect documented evidence of voter fraud. I have committed no crime, yet 
Ari Melber and the folks at NBC are literally demanding my arrest. I wasn't involved in the Electoral College effort. He actually puts words in my mouth saying that, quote, Roger Stone called on the politicians of Georgia to throw out the votes of the people of that state. I never uttered the word Georgia. The whole thing is a it's a fake news salad. He uses old clips to try to imply that I was palling around with Proud Boy's head Enrique Tarrio in the days before January 6th. That is categorically false. And I can say that there is no witness, no email, no text message, no encrypted chat room, or no encrypted message that would prove anything uh, that I said is untrue. This is one of the great smears of all time. But why are they doing this? Well, it's bloodlust. You see, those on the American left are very deeply disappointed that I didn't die of COVID-19 in a dank Georgia prison. The insistence by Melbourne now ricocheting through the Internet, particularly on X, formerly known as Twitter, is based in bloodlust. It is based in in hate. Uh, And it has extraordinary ramifications. In fact, they say, my critics, that I said on a video that Trump should declare victory even if he lost. But that isn't even remotely what I said. What I said was, if on election night it is up in the air, it is in dispute, then I think Trump should declare victory. That is the exact same advice that Secretary of State James A. Baker gave George W. Bush uh, in 2000. It's the exact same advice that Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy gave his son, Senator John F. Kennedy, uh, in 1960. Yes, in the world of public relations surrounding politics, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Al Gore should have declared victory, but he did not do so. Then former Attorney General Bill Barr picked up this canard, saying, well, if Roger Stone and others hadn't told Donald Trump to claim victory when he lost, maybe there wouldn't be uh, this prosecution of him in Washington, D.C. See, the problem is that MSNBC and CNN, uh, with their tsunami of hate and vituperation, they whip up the death threats against me and my family. I can't go to a a drugstore, a grocery store, a liquor store, a restaurant, uh, or, or certainly through an airport, without fear that someone might make an ugly scene or worse, take a swing at me. And as someone who is half Sicilian, that would be an enormous mistake. It's very sad to see what's happened to this country. When I got involved in American politics, uh, both parties were patriotic. Both parties believed in capitalism. Both parties uh, believed uh, in, in the free enterprise system. But what we're seeing today is their outrageous weaponization Uh, of, uh, of our justice system for political ends. Donald Trump and his supporters uh, have an absolute right to question the irregularities and anomalies in a federal election. 
they also have a right to go out and try to collect and document actual evidence of voter fraud. And when those in the mainstream media tell you that there is no evidence of voter fraud, that's simply not true. Huge news this past week about the authorities in Michigan finding evidence of a nationwide plot to uh, interfere uh, and taint the national elections, so much so that they contacted the FBI. But you won't read about it on page one of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. You won't see it uh, on uh, CNN or MSNBC or any of the three networks. Let me put it to you this way. I don't get my news from MSNBC for the same reason I don't eat out of the toilet. What we're seeing in this persecution of Donald Trump is something that you would expect to see in Fidel Castro's Cuba or in communist China or in the old Soviet Russia. Who jails their political opponents? Well, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao, and now, quite sadly, Joe Biden. There are those who say, well, Stone was predicting uh, that there was going to be fraud before the election even took place. That's absolutely right. You know why? Well, that's because Joe Biden himself announced it. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. Folks, we have a jam-packed show for you this Sunday. First, uh, Staten Island Borough President Vito Fisella joins us to talk about the migrant crisis in New York City. Donald Trump's campaign manager, Chris LaCivita, joins us to talk about the goals and hazards of Donald Trump's campaign. And finally, rock and roll pioneer uh, and entertainment industry legend, Pat Boone, joins us to talk about his 70 years in show business and his new country album, Country Jubilee. Now, if you haven't had a chance, let me urge you to go by StoneZone.com, StoneZone.com. You can listen to my latest WABC radio show there. Uh, you can also go to the store and buy any of my best-selling books, including The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ, The Clinton's War on Women, uh, The Bush Crime Family, uh, My Own Rules of the Road, Stone's Rules, with a terrific introduction by my good friend Tucker Carlson. That's StoneZone.com. We've had many cards and letters and emails and text messages asking about uh, the new organization that I am helping found, the Italian-American Civil Rights League. I'm happy to tell you uh, that it has been incorporated in New Jersey. Uh, the website is in construction, uh, and they will be up and open for business. This is a nonprofit charitable organization uh, that is going to fight to preserve Italian-American heritage, culture, and history. Italian-Americans, by the way, my mother's maiden name was Corbo, C-O-R-B-O. My people are from Sicily. Uh, this new organization is going to be up and open for business. You'll be able to join very shortly when we unveil the website. And you'll hear about it here 
on WABC. I want to remind you one more time, if you don't want to miss any of the great programming on WABC Radio, uh, please download the 77 WABC Radio app. Uh, And if you don't do that, well, you can listen at WABCRadio.com, where we are streaming worldwide. This is the most dynamic AM radio station in America. I am grateful to John Katzmatidis for this time every Sunday between 3 and 5 p.m. Eastern. And I want to remind you to stay tuned for my good friend Joe Piscopo, who comes on at 6 with Sundays with Sinatra. This is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show. I'll be right back. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now... Here's Roger Stone. This is Roger Stone, and you're on the Roger Stone Show here at WABC Radio. 77 WABC, making AM radio great again. Joining me now is the Staten Island Borough President, Vito Fasella. That, of course, is Richmond County, uh, to discuss the uh, issue uh, confronting the country uh, over the uh, migrant uh, uh, crisis in New York City. Vito, welcome uh, to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, Roger. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, There's been a a lot of heated nights uh, as the city of New York uh, has tried to locate migrants in the uh, uh, suburban district, I would call the suburban, the most Italian-American congressional district in the country, Staten Island. Vito, you were out front almost nine months ago, and you said the migrant shelters as planned by the city were unsustainable. You petitioned the Independent Budget Office uh, of New York City, uh, and the figures that were discussed at the time, have now virtually tripled. Uh, seems to me like you were right. Uh, you were elected as the chief executive of Richmond County, which is Staten Island. Uh, what kind of coordination and transparency have you personally had with Mayor Adams uh, during this crisis? Well, well, Roger, thanks. And, you, and the word is crisis, right? Because there is no end in sight and there's no plan to solve a problem. So therefore, it's sort of out of control. And therefore, in my opinion, it is a crisis. Um, And yeah, about nine months or so, we stood in the Travis section of Staten Island. And uh, we did that there because the migrants began to arrive in Staten Island. 
and at the same time, they were being welcomed with open arms and uh, in, in Manhattan. And we said, hey, this policy is unsustainable in part because you don't have a plan. Uh, the notion that we could accept anybody from around the world who comes to Manhattan and demands free accommodations and free food and taxpayer-funded health care, education, debit cards, phones, food stamps, anything under the sun, you know, by definition, we believe it's unsustainable. And unfortunately, we were right. Uh, and we were told then, uh, listen, you just got to suck it up and everybody's got to feel the pain. And our view was the federal government caused this problem by opening up the border and pretending it was closed. And the city had a right to shelter policy under a consent decree, not even a law and not a constitutional right to allow individuals to claim asylum and therefore get free accommodations and everything that came with it. And in the beginning, I would say that we were notified or we were a lot of rumors, as you can imagine, what site is going to be converted to a migrant shelter, uh, what uh, what area, a park, a school, whatever. And for the most part, it was, it was at least we were notified. Um, unfortunately, more recently, that hasn't been the case. Uh, so fast forward to St. John Villa, which is an old Catholic school that was shut down a few years ago. The city of New York purchased it, and it is directly across the street from another uh, school, uh, an old girls Catholic high school and an elementary school at St. Joseph Hill Academy. And then a block away is another elementary school in the heart of this beautiful residential district, and nobody was notified. You know, some people were notified the next day as they read it in the paper, and, and that's just not, to me, being transparent with with everybody involved, not to mention the fact that it's in the worst location possible. It seems to me that uh, Mayor Adams uh, has appealed to the governor, appealed to the president, both of his own party, uh, and rather than getting any assistance or even any funding, all he's gotten was the appointment of a liaison, which doesn't seem to be very valuable uh, to me. Uh, I, I'm grateful that the protests have been peaceful, uh, but I am heartened by the fact that literally thousands of Staten Island residents have shown up in a vigil to protest the fact that they're placing these migrants next to an elementary school, mostly a girls' school, as well as private homes, this seems very dangerous and unwise to me. Yeah, I, I think if you could sort of ask uh, your advisor, say, give me the worst location for a migrant shelter, and if they spent a good chunk of time evaluating it, they would pick this spot. Uh, and the reasons are a multi for multiple reasons. As I said, it's a, a right next door. This poor guy who lives right next door, a nice little home, raising his family, right over the fence of portable showers that the migrants will be using, their outdoor showers. Uh, the sanitary system of the school is not working properly. So, you know, there's there's a disgusting attachment to that as well. Uh, and, and we get back to the very simple thing. And Staten Island is a very freedom-loving people, as I'm sure you, you realize Roger, we, we love the country. It's a small town feel. So people from across Staten Island came over and united and said, we stand with these neighbors in our car in the South Beach section of Staten Island because it could be us. And we don't want it either. You know, Staten Island didn't so create this problem. Why do we have to solve the problem? And then concurrently, uh, you know, but government establishes priorities and you do what you can. You spend what you can. 
you make what happens, uh, you, you make things better. And in this case, the, that whole approach is getting thrown right out the window. So rather than say we may need a new school, like, no, we don't have enough money, but we find $12 billion to accommodate the migrants. If we want new roadways uh, paved or built, we don't have the money yet. We find $12 billion to get the migrants. So the world is sort of upside down. And then to add insult to injury, Roger, on two things. One is it seems the federal government is actually mocking the city. In other words, their first uh, few days ago, they came out and said, you know, the, you're, the way you're handling this situation is a mess. You have to get your house in order. We have nothing to do with your problem. Right? That's number one. Number two uh, is now we're discovering that there may be about 20,000 school children, migrant school children, attending public school without a requirement for a vaccine or immunization or anything like that. Now, the ordinary citizen who sends their kid to a public school in New York City or any school has to prove that they are vaccinated. So not only is there not even a double standard, there's a worse standard. In other words, the the migrant children are being allowed into the schools without vaccines. But if a young parent wanted to send their child to a school, they would have to demonstrate that they have all the vaccines that were required to gain access. Uh, So, you know, how is this a good policy whatsoever? So we just keep on going down a rabbit hole and it seems to get worse before it gets any better. Uh, I've noticed looking at the latest crime statistics uh, that while things are relatively flat in the rest of the city, crime has really uh, spiked upwards in Staten Island. Do you think that this is a manifestation of the of the state's uh, bond policy? Uh, they're soft on crime policies. Uh, is it because of this uh, invasion of migrants? What do you attribute this this spike in crime to? It's a very good point. You know, historically, Staten Island and Staten Islanders appreciate and value uh, personal security. Uh, we would be uh, the safest big city in America if it was a separate city of over 100,000. So we value it in part because we support law enforcement. We, we support their efforts to keep our communities safe. Uh, but that can only go so far when you have a state that Basically, you're saying, hey, if you commit a crime at 10 a.m., you'll be out on the streets by 3 a.m., 3 p.m. That's not a consistent or good policy to keep community communities safe because some folks believe that criminals are stupid. Uh, and and I, I'm, I'm in the court because maybe through just life experiences, you find that there are some criminals who are pretty darn smart. And if they determine or find out that there is no accountability for their evil actions, they're going to keep doing their evil actions. So in Staten Island, we have seen a spike. Some of it gang-related, uh, some of it attributed to stolen cars. Where kids would come from Jersey, steal cars, and head back. Uh, they, the state legislature basically said if you're 15, 16, 17, whatever, using a gun, you don't, you don't have to be treated as an adult. So all these uh, factors add up to a spike because the bottom line is people who want to do bad things, and they're only a small handful, think that they can get away with it. And frankly, they are. And until that changes, um, you know, we have to do our best to keep our community safe. And is it the migrant invasion, I think, is, a, is an extension of that because many of them have come over illegally. Uh, on Staten Island at the shelter, there are people from Europe. There isn't this Venezuelan influx. There is people from all over the world have figured it out 
fly to Mexico, walk across the border, get bused to New York, and get put up for free. I mean, that's the bottom line. And it's all the same mentality of do whatever you want, and there's not, not a problem. Uh, seems to me to have been a battle of attrition, meaning uh, they bring 100 migrants in, then you go to court, uh, they are mostly removed, then Mayor Adams appeals, uh, and the migrants come back. Uh, you have a court date coming up on seven, uh, September 14th to try to shut this particular location. Uh, what arguments uh, will the city attorney put before the court? Right. So along those lines, Roger, you're, you're right. We, we did bring legal action in Richmond County uh, Supreme Court, and we were sort of uh, elated. Granted, it was a temporary, it was a win, uh, but a temporary win where we prevailed on a temporary restraining order. Uh, submitting four causes of action, one of which is that the school is in a residential zone, one of the most restrictive in all of New York City, and now the city's coming along and converting it to a practically a hotel, which was never intended to, to be that way. The certificate of occupancy does not allow it. So another number of different reasons. It was a public nuisance. Again, the gentleman next door has to endure outdoor public showers and everything that, that comes with it, so we think it's a nuisance. We don't think there was proper notification. Uh, and the judge found for us at the trial level, and the city uh, argued basically, hey, uh, people got to absorb this no matter who you are. And um, and this is an emergency. And what we said is, yeah, but it's an emergency you created. It's not like a natural disaster or something happened out of a blue, which goes back to nine months ago when we said this is what's going to happen. So there is no emergency. This is bad policy that's leading to uh, you to be an indefensible position of everybody has to open up their buildings, everybody, you know, practically open up your homes. Uh, And that's what the city's arguing, is that there's an emergency declaration so we can basically do whatever we want. Uh, Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. You can listen to us at 770 on the AM dial, or you can go to wabcradio.com. I'm interviewing... Staten Island Borough President Vito Fasella, and we're talking about the migrant crisis going on uh, in New York City, New York State, but specifically uh, in Staten Island. Uh, Vito, uh, Eric Adams has referred to the Staten Island protesters, the the folks in the community who are opposed to placing these migrants uh, in a residential community as racists. How do you respond to that? So I've been to, if not every rally uh, and demonstration and basically neighbors coming together to support other neighbors, if you you want me to characterize it. Um, And I haven't heard anything like that. What I've heard is ordinary patriots, folks who love this country, who love their community, who can empathize with what their neighbors are going through can empathize if you're a parent of a 16-year-old girl and, you know, you're sending her to school, but right across the street is a migrant shelter and you have to worry about her safety, or a parent of a fourth grader, you have to worry about their safety. I think that's the genesis of people coming together and saying enough is enough. And I think in this country you still have the right to do so and question some policies that the government is forcing you to absorb and I don't hear any of that, and I haven't heard any of that. 
What I hear is this is bad. We're standing united. We hope the city reverses this decision. We all recognize this is a bad place for this migrant shelter to be. And we're hopeful that sanity prevails and common sense prevails and people stop doing this, at least around here. So that's been the message that we've articulated. And, and frankly, it's unfortunate that instead of taking a step back and figuring out how to solve the problem, it quickly goes into another direction that doesn't solve the problem, which is why you're also hearing a, a growing, you know, drumbeat for some to say we should secede. And frankly, that's a discussion that's probably worth having. Actually, Vito, my sources tell me that you and your team have been ahead of the curve. I have been doing a deep dive on secession for well over nine months. Uh, explain to folks how that could potentially work. Well, as somebody, for full disclosure, I supported secession 30 years ago, uh, in part, and for those who may not know, you know, Staten Island is one of five boroughs in New York City. And uh, perhaps a hundred and something years ago, in the late 1800s, it was the, when the city was consolidated, the, the goal was to make things better for the people of Staten Island. And then throughout the 2000s, the 21st century, a lot of it was Staten Island getting its fair share. It ultimately became known as the Forgotten Borough. In other words, the city was making decisions that were not in the best interests of Staten Island. And we had an exhibit, figuratively and literally, in the Fresh Kills landfill, it was the only garbage dump in all of New York City. So although we had 5% of the garbage, I mean 5% of the population, we got 100% of New York City's garbage. So that was Exhibit A in the secession movement in the 90s, and people overwhelmingly supported it, only to be hoodwinked by the legislature at the time. And then I think there was a, a, a good 20-plus years of, of solid government. Staten Island was at, a, was at the table. But that started to drift again about 10 years ago, and it's culminating in a, a thoughtful discussion of what's in Staten Island's best interest now and going forward. And if secession is the right way to go, then we should put, it, put a group together, analyze the costs and the benefits, the pros and the cons, and trust the people of Staten Island to make their decision as to what's best for them in the future. And the migrant shelter is an example. Nobody wants it. The political representatives don't want it, and that includes Democrats, not just Republicans. The community doesn't want it. The community boards and, and uh, residential associations don't want it. So here you have a situation in Staten Island where nobody wants something, and they're getting it anyway. So you, I think it just it warrants the conversation, and you're right, we have been looking at it for the last number of months, is to do it in a, a thoughtful, deliberate way and trust the people to to make the best decision for themselves and their families in the future. Uh, how legally would it work? In other words, would there be a plebiscite in which the people of Staten Island vote to leave New York City? Uh, how actually can this work? So the last time was sort of a, a multifaceted approach. There was a referendum for the people of Staten Island to, to vote. And ultimately, there was supposed to be state legislation that if the referendum went well, for the most part, you know, nobody would stand in its way. And Albany is comprised of the state assembly and the state senate and the governor obviously is the chief executive officer. And once they realized New York and Staten Island is overwhelmingly wanted secession, they, uh, the legislature basically invoked something called a home rule message and said, well, in order for this to happen, New York City has to agree to let Staten Island go. 
And for a variety of reasons, including the landfill, the New York City said, we're not letting you go. And we'd have to repeat something like that this time around again. But the expectation is maybe folks in other parts of the city would say Staten Island is a little different. And if you look at the politics, and I'm not being saying we're right, they're wrong, we're just different. Uh, the, the mayor, when he won uh, two years ago, won New York City by 42 points, right? He lost that island by 42 points. That's like an 84-point swing. The governor uh, won by about six points statewide, but she won by more than 50 points in New York City and lost that island by 33. And even the president, uh, Trump, who got crushed you know, in other parts of New York City, carried Staten Island by a significant margin. So we just sort of establish our priorities differently, and we think different politically. So maybe it comes to a point where it's just not into us anymore, and they'll let us go. So we, we want to appeal to reason and, and have a rational, serious discussion about this, because people in Staten Island are getting more and more fed up, and they don't deserve it. They work hard. Some of them work two or three jobs. They put their kids through school. They try to teach them the right thing to do. And right now they're being told, tough luck. You know, we don't hear you. You're not getting the things that you want. You're getting the things that we want. You know, I always, because of uh, I'm a political animal, I always see things through the prism of politics. Some people have said that this effort to send migrants to Staten Island is because Staten Island is the only part of New York City uh, that votes a Republican. Do you think that, that that this is true, that Staten Island is being treated unfairly because it's the only Republican borough? I, I, think, uh, I think Staten Island is being treated unfairly primarily because Staten Island didn't cause this problem and is being asked to solve the problem and is not getting things that we prefer and we want and we think are good and going to make the Staten Island quality of life better. Uh, in fairness, other parts of the city have to absorb it. And frankly, other parts of the state uh, are absorbing it. So are we being uh, disproportionately penalized? I don't think so on that score. But at the core issue is why do we have to do this? Uh, we don't think we have to. We think you should challenge the right to shelter decree. Because, Roger, the logical extension is this. If a million people showed up in New York City tomorrow, there are people who truly believe that New York City has an obligation to put those people up in a hotel for upwards of a year uh, and feed them and give them everything else. I mean, that is insane. So is that not only be un uh, targeted unfairly? I wouldn't say that so much as we just don't want to have we don't want to have anything to do with this situation at all. Uh, I, as I've been following this very closely, there's been a 24-hour vigil. Uh, mm -hmm. Staten Island citizens like John Tobacco, Scott uh, yep. Lobeil, uh, uh, Frank Morano, uh, uh, Curtis Sliwa, and others uh, have been peacefully protesting. Uh, and the turnout of citizens who've also been peaceably protesting is really impressive. People feel extremely strongly. How, how important is that show uh, of community support for a solution and opposition to what is really an invasion of the community? You're absolutely right, Roger. I think it's an important reflection of how people perceive this. 
you know, ironically, there was a rally a few nights ago, and we had, who knows, over a 1,000 Staten Island residents show up, listening, um, not going crazy at whatsoever. They were there you know, in solidarity. And ironically, there was a group, I think it was Antifa, that came up to try to disrupt the, this peaceful protest. You know, unfortunately, the police were able to intervene and, and to get them out. But the ones who are really the agitators are the ones who think this is a good idea. So it is important that we speak with, with one sort of voice. And you mentioned John and others who come out and help to, to rally the folks to say, let's keep the, the focus on this to try to do it right. Uh, and you had a situation last Friday where there were 140 police officers on site for 22 migrants. Just think of that cost alone uh, of regular pay and overtime pay. And it almost became as that the citizens became, and I'm not saying the NYPD did this, but it almost became like the citizens were the enemy. They were putting video cameras to protect the migrants from the residents. <laughs> and, you know, when you start looking at all these things, and as I mentioned before, you allow non-citizens or migrant children to go to schools without vaccines, but Mrs. Smith, who's sending her kid to the third grade, if she doesn't have a vaccine for the kid, the kid's not getting into the school, how is that how is that fair in any sense of the word? Uh, and that's what you're seeing across the board. And we're, Staten Island, not, we're not going away. We're not going away. We're going to keep banging the drum because it's the right thing to do. We feel that we have to be the voice for the people of this section of, Sta- of Staten Island. And frankly, if it could happen here, it could happen anywhere tomorrow. One of the most shocking things that I saw, I think it was two nights ago, were these these sewer trucks, essentially, coming in because there are not enough bathroom facilities uh, within the facility where the migrants are being housed uh, to essentially clean up the feces, clean up the the, the urine. I mean, this is this is this is this is dangerous. It's unhealthy. Uh, It's it's disgusting. Uh, I I don't I understand why people in Staten Island would be extraordinarily uh, upset. It's not just the prospect uh, of crime, uh, but also the fact that this facility is not built for this. Uh, it, it's not it's not ready to receive these people. Now I understand some migrants are just voluntarily checking out, not sure where they're going. Uh, but uh, I think you've got a giant problem on your hands. And I have to admit that you have handled this uh, in an extraordinarily tactful and positive way. The idea that Staten Islanders are xenophobic doesn't make any sense because virtually everybody I know from Staten Island is either Irish American or Italian American or Hispanic American. uh, And all of our people came here as migrants. Uh, I don't think the people of Staten Island hate migrants, but I do think they oppose illegal migrants uh, not only being put in the community, but be given, being given, you know, uh, ATM cards, uh, being given free housing, ultimately free education. And I have no doubt they actually kind of blurted this out yesterday uh, at the White House. The president's spokeswoman essentially said the plan is ultimately to make these people citizens so they can vote. And how are they going to vote? Well, they're going to vote for Democrats because it is democratic open border policies that let let, let them into this country. Uh, Vito, I, I read this morning that the city of New York is going to be using drones 
to monitor people's celebration of the Labor Day weekend, focusing on people in their backyards, uh, looking for for what? I'm not sure. Looking for drug abuse, uh, looking to see how many beers you drink. I'll tell you this, it won't be Bud Light. Uh, What do you think of this? Yeah, I, I think so. Going back to your question before, let me bring that up about the truck. This school, St. John Villa, was evaluated at least a few times during the last nine months, and the response was always, "It's not a viable location." And we believe one of the reasons it wasn't a viable location is the sanitary system did not work, which is why you have a truck have to show up there at least once, sometimes twice a day to clean out the concrete pits and use the right word. It's disgusting. Uh, You know, even if you have a septic tank, you get it cleaned out maybe six months, every whatever period of Here they're doing once and twice a day. A truck is pulling up, and it stinks. (laughs) Literally, not just figuratively, it stinks. And there are residents who have to deal with that. You know, and secondly, um, in terms of Staten Island, I'm the son of obviously Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants and like you said Roger many folks it's never been about that it's we we get it you know we walk to the St. George and we look across and we see Ellis Island and many of the folks from Staten Island families went through Ellis Island sponsored by individuals here assumed the birth, you know if something went wrong you had somebody who was going to take care of you and they never came for a handout they came for a hand maybe a hand up but never a handout and we've turned that whole formula on its head. And as you mentioned, the, the Italian-American Congressional District, I was privileged to serve in the U.S. House for 12 years representing Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn. And we had hundreds of legal immigration cases. And we did everything we could to, to help people who wanted to come here legally and pursue and, and get a taste of the American dream. And they came from all over the world, and we helped everybody in the same way. Uh, and I always say to this, because those folks are waiting 5, 10, 20 years, if not more, to come here legally or to get legalized, how do you look those people in the face and say, hey, you have to wait because you just had 100,000 migrants jump in front of you, and we have to move heaven and earth to help them, but you're just going to have to wait and stay in the back of the line. So for those reasons, I think they're wrong. Well, we feel strongly about this. Is immigration a complicated matter? It certainly is. Very difficult. Uh, but I don't think illegal, uh, someone here is, is, who is here illegally should get more rights than somebody who's trying to do it in the right sort of way. And I think in terms of the drones, <laughs> you know, if it's part of a normal apparatus of keeping the city safe, that's one thing. But if it starts encroaching on people's privacy and civil liberties, uh, I think that's a mistake. So now with you fighting this on every front, what would your message be to the people in the rest of the country? I think it, um, I think number one, uh, and I've always maintained this, that a country without a border really isn't a country. We need to honor and, and maintain the integrity of our nation's borders because citizenship means something. Being an American means something. And to say uh, we're going to open up the border and let people from all over the world come in and, and come here illegally and allow it to happen and then open up your purse book and say we're going to pay for you. Uh, we're seeing bad policy in action every step of the way. So the message is uh, we have seen the results of ineffective federal policy that has allowed borders to remain open 
and others who say taxpayer funding, uh, taxpayer dollars can be thrown out the window to accommodate anybody who comes here. We need to stand firm and stand hard and strong that we believe in an America that when you come here, you come here legally, you do whatever you can to, to bust your bust your butt, go to school, work hard, and that's the America we, we really want to see, and that's the Staten Island we want to see, and I think that's what's resonating, and most people sort of understand it. It's a handful who don't get it, and unfortunately, some of them are in, in charge. All right, now, Vito, I'm going to ask you the most difficult question of this interview. Okay. I'm coming to Staten Island. I want <laughs> the best pizza in the borough. Where do I go? Now, Now, if you have to name more than one place, I understand you're in politics. But if I want the best pizza in Staten Island, where do I go? So there's some, that's the great question, Roger. And Staten Island has some of the best pizza in the world, not just New York. Uh, there are some great places. I'm a loyal guy. Uh, the Danino's has always been my, my favorite. There are so many others, Campania's, Lee's Tavern, uh no, you you name it, they're they're out there. But if I had to pick, uh, I would go to Danino's, and that's in Port Richmond. All right, many many thanks to Staten Island Borough President Vito Fasella for joining us here on the Roger Stone Show. Vito, God bless you, uh, and good luck and prayers for the people of Staten Island. Thank you so much, Roger. Appreciate you having me on, and have a great day. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going, and he's smart, and he's strong, and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. We're back on the Roger Stone Show here at WABC Radio. You can find us at 770 on the AM dial if you live in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. Or you can listen to us where we are live streaming now worldwide at WABCradio.com. As I said earlier, I recommend that you get the 77 WABC radio app downloaded on your phone so you don't miss any of the great programming here on WABC. My guest now is Chris LaCivita. He has the uh, the privilege and the honor, I think, of being the campaign manager for the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln, uh, the 45th president of the United States. And Chris and I both believe the 47th president of the United States, Donald Trump. Uh, Chris is a grizzled veteran of the political wars, having run the U.S. Senate campaigns of George Allen in Virginia, Pat Roberts uh, in Kansas, a senior advisor to the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. But Chris is also a Marine veteran of the Persian Gulf War, a graduate uh, of Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, and to my mind, one of the most capable uh, organized uh, and strategic thinking political operatives in the country. Chris LaCivita, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Uh, Roger, that's a hell of an introduction. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> very well, nice. Uh, very look, nice. Do- Great to Don- be here. Donald Trump's uh, campaigns of 2016 uh, and even 2020 were known as chaotic affairs, to say the least. Right. Uh, right. Donald Trump, who's been a friend of mine for 45 years, 
uh, is a man who doesn't like to be handled, doesn't like to be managed, doesn't like to be packaged, doesn't like to be scripted. He, he's not a politician. He will never be a politician. He's a political figure. He, he's uh, the leader of a movement that he always acknowledges is much bigger than himself. But this campaign uh, is different. Uh, the, the Trump campaign, under the able leadership of campaign chairwoman Susie Wiles, also one of the most capable political operatives uh, I know, uh, and yourself, uh, has been complimented for its uh, efficiency, uh, its, uh, its lean nature, uh, its technological proficiency, uh, its, its uh, seeming lack, generally speaking, of leaks. What is it like managing the campaign of a man who is a force of nature, who's a whirlwind? Right. Well, which is which is very accurate. I mean, in the sense that, um, well, first of all, the one thing that hasn't changed in any of this is 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 President Trump. Um, he he's not managed. He's not packaged. He's not programmed. He's, as you know, um, uh, just he, he he's he's he his, is his own person, which is part of the reason that he has such great appeal uh, to Republicans and to those people who who want to see real uh, change, uh, uh, you know, in Washington and, and 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 literally the way we project ourselves around the world. But you know, um, we worry about what we can control, right? And the president uh, made it clear to Susie and I when we started this endeavor with him that you know our responsibility is the is the the nuts and bolts and the day to day and those are the things that we can control we we view our our role as having the responsibility of putting together a top flight campaign operation organization that is there for the president so that we can move on a dime so we can pivot uh, so we can support the efforts that, you know, and the message that he's pushing. Uh, you know, we don't sit around on a weekly basis and, and with the president and, and say, OK, we're going to talk about this. Right. I, I mean, that that would be, uh, uh, you know, a silly waste of time. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, just isn't not who the president is, which is great. Um, at times, yes, it can be it can be <laughs> it can be surprising. Um, but again, if the campaign is built in such a way that it's meant to be supportive of those efforts, it, it's it's really it's it, it's different, no doubt. For someone like me who's been doing this for 32 years in very traditional settings, you know your 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 traditional campaigns kind of things. It, it, what's great about this is it's it's everything is new uh, and everything is different, and it's and it and it brings a level of creativity and brings a level a level of freshness that. Uh, honestly, it, it, it politics needs. But um, but again, our role basically have an operation in place, do those blocking and tackling types of things on the ground um, that that, you know, the campaign in 16. Look, they won. Right. So there's no better outcome than winning. Um, and and we're very confident about our position and winning this time as well. We just want to do it in the manner that that that, you know, we don't have to bleed as much. Well, the best thing about a Trump campaign uh, is Donald Trump. I don't know any other public figure in any strata, uh, business, athletics, show business. I don't know anybody 
who could draw, you know, 40,000 people to a small town in South Carolina. I worked for Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was an enormously popular president. He was beloved. Uh, he had a, an extraordinary base that he fought for and won in the Republican Party. Unlike Donald, uh, probably like Donald Trump, he was not the, the choice of the party establishment. In fact, he was bitterly opposed uh, by yeah. the party establishment. He won the nomination over the objections uh, of the party establishment. He reformed the Republican Party in his image. But even the great Ronald Reagan did not rack up the kind of poll numbers and the kind of intensity of support uh, of this president. Uh, this is this is counterintuitive. Normally speaking, when a candidate for public office gets indicted in multiple jurisdictions, their money dries up, uh, their support dries up, and they take a nosedive in the polls. Here we've seen the exact opposite, which leads me to believe that what they're trying to do to Donald Trump is so incredibly transparent that the American people are getting it, and more people are getting it every single day. Chris, do you think that they would be persecuting the president uh, in all of these investigations and indictments if he was not leading by big double digits within the Republican Party and continuing to lead Joe Biden in the general election trial heats? Well, you know, um, and all you have to do is look at the timing, right? Um, you know, in, in the, the, the bogus stuff that they're doing in Georgia, in New York, uh, on, you know, they literally sat on this stuff for two and a half years just waiting to see, uh, you know, how the race was shaping up. Uh, so it's very transparent. The American people, look, you know, they they can see they can see a witch hunt they can see this stuff the way it's playing out and they know exactly what's going on which is part of the reason why you see uh, the president uh, at least within the Republican Party so solidly ahead even in the general election the last five polls that have come out have have President Trump uh, beating Joe Biden um, that creates a degree of concern clearly by these folks uh, that are part of that deep state that. Just, I mean, look. Their goal is to prevent Donald Trump um, um, from 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 being being in office. And look, they 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 want to put him away for a thousand years. If you took the total amount of time, <clears throat> prison time that all of these assorted uh, charges come with, it's a thousand years. And <laughs> you know, and so that level of overreach, that level of just just it, it's it, it's. The antithesis to everything that Americans believe, and and you know we lecture the world about uh, uh, not persecuting political prisoners, et cetera, and here we are doing the same thing. So they're undermining America's moral position in the world on a lot of issues um, by by essentially adopting the tactics of a third world banana republic. You know, I, I watched uh, an interview last night with Tucker Carlson and uh, Dave Portnoy from uh, Barstool Sports. Portnoy's a guy who runs around the country raiding pizza, which is great, except for he's not like you and I, Italian-American, so I don't know what he knows about pizza. Uh, both of them believed, based on the interview I saw, uh, that the president should have participated in the Fox uh, presidential candidates debate. Uh, 
Uh, I, I know you were opposed to that. I was opposed to it. Uh, I know most of the consensus uh, uh, of the campaign were opposed to it. And that turned out to be the exact right position. Uh, and Donald Trump achieves another first. Not only is he the first president of the United States who was not a governor or a senator or a congressman or a general. It's the first time we've elected a, a business person as president. But he now holds the uh, uh, the unbroken record by a lot, as he would put it, of the single largest number of downloads, or I should say views on uh, on social media of his epic interview uh, with with Tucker Carlson. Y yet another Trump milestone. What was your assessment, Chris? I'm sure you watched the debate. What did you think of the debate? Well, I was actually there. Uh, you know, Jason Miller and I and Stephen Chung were there representing the campaign. So, you know, part of our role was to to uh, be on site and um, push the president's messaging. And, and even though the president wasn't there in person, uh, we were still there uh, with a presence uh, for the campaign, which we thought was pretty effective because you, we, we basically followed some of the candidates in the spin room and, and, and put our own uh, positioning on 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 how the whole thing went, but but I will I will tell you that that you know looking back at everything, uh, even with the with the hind with the benefit of hindsight, um, not attending that first debate was one hundred and ten percent the right decision. Donald Trump still won the debate, and he wasn't even there. Um, all of the coverage going into the debate was a discussion about would, would he or would he not show up, right? So he dominated the pre-coverage. Uh, and then it was all built around how is this candidate we're going to respond to this and how is this, you know. And then, you know, you had uh, the circus convene. Uh, and, you know, it it, it was um, – I, I thought it was – the, the, the first 30 minutes of the debate confirmed the president's position of not attending, right? I mean, the first 30 minutes, it, 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 that, that decision was validated. Um, you, you know, you had a group of, of eight politicians all on stage desperately trying, uh, you know, to score political points. And, you know, Vivek had a great uh, had a great, I thought, debate just because he was the center of attention, you know. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a hockey guy. You don't score goals unless you throw pucks to the net. And he was throwing pucks to the net all night long. And he didn't hit every single one, uh, but he hit a couple. And, you know, Ron DeSantis, uh, DeSanctimonious, uh, it was amazing to me that he just stood there uh, like like a potted plant uh, for the, the a really solid portion of the debate, almost the whole damn thing, watching, you know, Mike Pence and Vivek Ramaswamy go at it, and he's standing in between both of them. Uh, you know, it was clear to me that within the first 10 minutes, he made the decision that uh, I just want to make it off of here alive. And, and because of that, you, you know, his campaign op apparatus after uh, the whole debate was running around saying he won the debate because no one wanted to go after him. Well, no one wanted to go after him because, hey, you know, they thought it, it was it, it was a waste of time. I mean, he's a non-factor. Um, so, you know, we've seen that. We've actually seen that, Roger, borne out in public polling, uh, private polling. Um, and so, you know, our real focus now is 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 
you know, the 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 election that uh, uh, in November of 24, which is Joe Biden and, and defeating the Biden crime family. Yeah, it's uh, funny. Uh, Dick Morris, uh, who's a friend of mine, uh, you know, was adamant that the president absolutely should participate in the debate that his campaign mm-hmm. would collapse if he did not do so. Could not have been more wrong. Donald Trump right. bears the distinction of being the only candidate for president to win a debate by not attending and participating <laughs> in it. True. Uh, uh, and Ron DeSantis, uh, from the beginning, the rationale for his candidacy was when Donald Trump uh, gets indicted in all these various jurisdictions, even though it may be unfair, his campaign is going to collapse. His money's going to dry up. He's going to take a header in the polls. Uh, and the guy, next guy in line, who's really at that point was trying to appropriate the Trump America first message, was Ron DeSantis. Uh, and what he, the classic mistake I think he made, was letting expectations get way, way out of whack. Uh, when I worked for Ronald Reagan in 1976, we were challenging a sitting incumbent president for the presidential nomination, Gerald Ford. Now, even though Ford had never been elected, Republicans believed in hegemony. We believe in the natural order of things. That's why we keep nominating the first runner-up from the previous contest. So when George W. Bush bested John McCain, uh, in the next cycle we nominated John McCain. When George Bush Sr., bested Bob Dole. Uh, In the next uh, round, we nominated Bob Dole. By the way, Bob Dole, one of the greatest Americans of the 20th century, would have been a great president. But his year was 1988. His year was not 1996. So Ron DeSantis, to me, seemed wooden. He seemed scripted. Uh, He seemed tight, kind of nervous. Uh, he turns on his smile on and off like a strobe light, like he suddenly remembers that he's supposed to be smiling, so you get this kind of weird strobe light, quick smile. Uh, He did not get what he needed out of the debate. He needed a standout performance to to even hold on to second. Uh, The thing about Vivek Ramaswamy is twofold. One, He, by and large, has appropriated Donald Trump's campaign message. He and his handlers have been smart enough to look at the polls and realize this is Donald Trump's party. Donald Trump has changed the face of the Republican Party forever. We are no longer the party of the country club elite. We're no longer the party of Wall Street. We are the party of working class America. We are the party of the middle class. We are not the party of the neocons anymore. We are the party that puts America first. And that is so dominant in all of the polling. Ramaswamy, for example, showing up in Miami uh, outside the courthouse on the day Donald Trump is arraigned there to support Donald Trump that shows that he's running a very smart campaign. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to be nominated, uh, but it does mean that there is at least a logic to his campaign strategy, and it's a testimony to how popular and strong Donald Trump is 
uh, in the Republican Party. Chris, I have to ask you this. What do you make of the candidacy of Chris Christie? Um, you know, I, that's, a, that's a great question, Roger. Um, I, I mean, uh, other than a complete and utter waste of time and, and you know, a vanity project of some sort, I mean, I guess everyone, uh, you know, uh, and in his position at some point in time wants to be relevant again. Um, and so, you know, um, you know, he, he was professing his undying loyalty, you know, when the president was elected uh, to, to, to the president and um, you know, but he, um, I, I don't know. I just, it's, it, he's honest to God, Roger, I don't spend a whole lot of my time worrying about Chris Christie uh, or even thinking about the guy, because uh, it's really not worth the time of day. But um, but I, I guess it's I guess it would only be viewed as uh, y- you know relevancy. He's 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 desperate to be relevant again. Yeah, I, I've seen this phenomenon before. His year was 2012. He should have run. Yeah. He now know right. he now knows he should have run. His right. time has passed. If he were the Republican nominee, he couldn't carry New Jersey today. Uh, his his poll ratings in New Jersey are abysmal. Last time I looked, he had a an approval rating of nine percent. But there is no rationale for his candidacy other than revenge uh, and going to yeah, the debate but, and acting like yeah. a bully. Uh, I don't think he helped himself at all. Uh, he's he's a non-factor in this race. By the way, another good reason why President Trump didn't attend the debate: when you have a fifty-point lead or a forty-point lead. Why would you open yourself up uh, to uh, being ganged up on by multiple candidates who realize that to get nominated, they have to somehow make ground on Donald Trump? Uh, And at Fox, given the Brett Baer interview uh, a few minutes before, a few weeks or I guess days uh, before the presidential debate, you didn't have to be a genius to see that the moderators were going to be hostile to Donald Trump. We're going to keep dishing up hostile questions, uh, wanting to talk more about the persecution of Donald Trump uh, than the issue positions of Donald Trump, which, let's face it, are well known to begin with. Everybody knows where Donald Trump stands on border security. Uh, And and, uh, if I had a dollar for every person who said to me, you got to get the president to reverse himself on the COVID-19 vaccination. Uh, Donald Trump does not have a reverse gear. Just doesn't work that way. Just doesn't work that way. But anybody who watched his video yesterday should understand two things. One, another pandemic, the use of another virus uh, to in order to cripple Donald Trump in an election through the use of mail-in ballots is clearly in the game plan of those who seek to stop him from returning to the White House and restoring uh, our constitutional values uh, and the strength and prosperity of the United States. But secondarily, he could not have been stronger when I saw this video. No mandatory vaccinations, no mandatory masks, no lockdowns, no closing, uh, no, no requirement of masks on mass transportation. Uh, I think he has just now turned this this issue very much to his advantage. Chris, right now, the uh, as it stands, uh, the president's trial in Washington, D.C., which this still boggles the mind, he's being charged 
with questioning the outcome of an election. He's being charged with questioning the irregularities and anomalies in uh, in a federal election uh, and for seeking to collect documented evidence of voter fraud. He has an absolute constitutional right to do both of those things. I, it's very hard for me to understand how those things could be deemed to be criminal. But as someone who has stood trial in the District of Columbia and did nothing whatsoever wrong, uh, this boggles the mind. And I go a step further. I really believe that Jack Smith's next move is going to be to charge sitting Republican members of Congress who did the same thing Donald Trump did, exercise their First Amendment rights to question the outcome of the election. Here's my question. Uh, with the with the trial date now set on the 4th of March, the day before the Super Tuesday primary, which is the biggest single swath of delegates uh, awarded in the Republican nomination process, what kind of challenges does that present to the Trump campaign? Well, it only presents a challenge if you let it, right? So a lot of it has to do with your our focus and 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 you know obviously with with the the scheduling of a of the trial of a trial date you know of of March fourth the day before Super Tuesday, you know once again you know they've they've telegraphed their hand they've telegraphed their intentions their true intentions, which is this desperate attempt to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Uh, and it's, that's also being borne out, by the way, Roger, in the discussions that some secretaries of state across the country are having with regard to the 14th Amendment, uh, which, by the way, is completely bogus. And uh, that the, these discussions, you know, that a secretary of state could arbitrarily just say, oh, um, you know, Donald Trump can't stand for election and we'll, we'll, we can we can keep him from being on the ballot in a Republican primary, Democrat secretaries of state contemplating injecting themselves into the middle of a Republican primary and denying uh, someone on the ballot. So, again, the, it's just another example of how far they're going. But but, you know, in terms of, you know, what we need to do for delegates and what we need to do for, uh, you know, in winning these elections, it's we're just not going to let those things that the left throws up as roadblocks get on our way. We can't. We have to be creative. We have to be energized. We have to be focused. Quite frankly, uh, if the Republicans, the quicker the Republicans unify behind uh, the presumptive nominee, who's Donald Trump, uh, the better off the country would be going into a general election. Uh, and, and, and we need to make sure that that happens sooner rather than later. And, and just to close out on the on the Christie thing, because this is one of the, and one a line I've been wanting to use in some venue. But you know, Chris Christie to the Republican Party just would be a bridge too far. <laughs> well said, <laughs> uh, folks. If you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio, and we're talking with, uh, to my mind, one of the very best and skillful political operatives in America today, Chris Lasavita, who happens to be the campaign manager for President Donald J. Trump. Uh, tell me about the money, because Donald Trump always does the counterintuitive. 
he is subjected to the humiliation of being mugshotted in Georgia, where I think it, this is the most egregious prosecution of all of them. Uh, and rather than be humiliated, he immediately goes out and puts it up on social media uh, and uses it as a symbol of the injustice that is being done to him. People go out. Uh, this created a thousand memes. Uh, this is a this is typical of Donald Trump. Rather than hide it under a bushel, he wears it like a badge. Uh, and not only is he spiked in the polls, but you've had quite an influx of money since this happened. No. Oh well, I mean, twenty four hours it was over seven million dollars. Um, we can't print the t shirts fast enough. Um, the uh, you know, over 60% of the donors that have come in uh, right after that mugshot were new donors. So uh, the response from uh, not just Republicans, but just Americans in general has been overwhelming uh, and has been, you know, I think that's it's, it's demonstrative of, of clearly uh, the fact that people know what's going on and they see this as a grave injustice and and uh, it's it's Americans way of of putting their foot down and and they're going to continue to do that you know through the primary season they're going to continue to do that in the general election and um, the folks that have done this are going to reap what they sow because it's just it's just so so much of an overreach from every you know from from every uh aspect that one could think. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we take solace in the fact, and I know the president does as well, in in the amount of support that he's getting from the American public, from all cross-sections of the American public. You know, as a veteran of 13 national presidential campaigns myself, uh, and by the way, I cast my last vote in a Republican primary in Florida for your candidate, uh, uh, Rand Paul, uh, pardon me, uh, Ron Paul, your, your candidate's father, Ron Paul, uh, people don't understand the extent to which careful budgeting uh, is absolutely crucial. This is where I think the Trump campaign, and particularly the, the skills of Susie Wiles, the campaign chairwoman, have really come into play. You have to spend your money very carefully. You have to plan for the long term. One of the reasons that Ron DeSantis's campaign uh, is a dumpster fire uh, is because they're extravagant expending at the front end uh, at the same time relying on a base of millionaire and billionaire maxed out donors and bundlers, bundlers who have lost their enthusiasm based on terrible poll ratings, uh, but people who are maxed out and can't give anymore, whereas Donald Trump's campaign is sustained by tens of thousands of small and medium-sized contributions from ordinary people who can give multiple times. And the people planning the campaign, executing the campaign, Chris LaCivita, Susie Wiles, uh, are carefully husbanding resources and planning for the long term. I can't stress how vitally important this is. Uh, the Bushes always did this extraordinarily well. It takes enormous discipline, but you have run an extraordinarily lean, but also an extraordinarily efficient operation, considering uh, all the things you have to do. 
clearly, the persecution of the president legally is designed to do three things. One, to sap his resources financially. Well, guess what? He's refilling the coffers quickly. The more you go after him, the more, more money that comes in. Secondarily, to try to get him off the campaign trail, that's not going to work either because Donald Trump can make news wherever he is and whatever he is doing. Uh, and lastly, to try to uh, to dirty him up even further, uh, and that's clearly failing as well, as all of the polling shows that his standing among the crucial independents continues to rise. So uh, I think, Chris Lasavita, you are going to be at the helm of what is, without any question, one of the most historic uh, come-from-behind victories uh, in American political history. I would note that the only president who served one term as president left the White House in a disputed election and then came back to win the White House again was Grover Cleveland, a New Yorker. I have little doubt uh, that under the skilled leadership of Chris Lasavita, uh, and an incredibly talented group of people who work on Donald Trump's campaign, that you are going to pull off political history, that Donald Trump is going to run the tables uh, for the nomination, uh, he's going to run the tables in the courts, uh, and he is going to be returned to the White House. It is historic, it is, uh, is nerve-wracking, it is breathtaking, uh, but I have every confidence, Chris, Knowing this business for 45-plus years, you are the right man for the job, and you have the candidate who is at the right time, at the right place, and the last best hope to save this nation and get us back on track. Chris LaCivita, I want to thank you for joining us here on The Roger Stone Show. Thanks, Roger. True pleasure. It really is. Many thanks. God bless you. Take care, right. sir. There you have it, folks. Chris Lasavita, a great uh, a patriot, a veteran of the Persian Gulf War, a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, my fellow Italian-American. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show, and we'll be right back. It's The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is a Roger Stone, and we're back on The Roger Stone Show. To me... When it comes to entertainment and show business, there are certain individuals that transcend description to be actual icons. Al Jolson is one, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. But today we're joined by yet another of the one, another one of them, Pat Boone, who was one of the most famous teen idols of the 1950s and 60s, known for his squeaky clean image and devout Christian faith. Pat Boone has sold millions of records, starred in a string of family-friendly hit movies, and actually helped pioneer the entire rock and roll movement. He continues to act in films, serve as a spokesman for numerous brands, and recently released a new single, Grits, and a new milestone country music project, which we're going to talk about in a minute, Country Jubilee. It is my great honor to to uh, to uh, host uh, and introduce Pat Boone to the Roger Stone Show. <laughs> I'm just sitting here letting my ego inflate, you know. I, but <laughs> I 
but thanks for that. One thing we left out was my writing, which is true, the second Jewish national anthem. I wrote the words to Exodus, this land is mine, God gave this land to me. Ernest Gold wrote the melody, and I wrote the words, and and the, the Christmas card on which I wrote those words is on the wall of the righteous Gentile at Yad Vashem. And for a kid from Nashville, church-going white kid, to have written the second Jewish national anthem is, uh, is a landmark thing for me. So uh, it overshadows most of the other uh, accolades. But, but I've had a blessed life, Roger, no question. Well, you speak, of course, of the great song Exodus, which was the theme of the Academy Award-winning movie by Leon Uris. Yeah. Uh, and the music, as you point out, by Ernest Gold. How is it that you came to write the lyrics for that epic, epic standard? It's a good, it's a good story. <clears throat> and, uh, and the truth is that I had read, I, I came from a Bible-reading family in Nashville. We were not, my dad a building contractor, mom a registered nurse, very practical professions, but our going to church and reading the Bible uh, was a practical part of our lives. That's just the way I grew up. So I knew the whole history, as far as the Bible tells it, of the people of Israel, and uh, and, and have felt as a Christian as an adopted Jew, because the, the Jews have always been God's chosen people. That's never changed. But it was prophesied that there would come one of that number who would be a Messiah, a Jew, to, to be the Savior of the world, but himself a Jew coming first to the Jews. And so I identified with Judaism for my whole life. So when I heard the song, Ferrani Teicher piano duo playing that bum 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 I got goosebumps I thought whoa I want to sing that and so my manager contacted the publisher Chapel Music and uh, said Pat Boone would like to record that song what are, where are all the words they said there aren't any words and there won't be and he asked why well because several of the uh, famous noted uh, uh, songwriters have proposed lyrics, most of them Jewish, of course, and they're trying to compress 3,000 years of history into one short little melody, and uh, we just don't think they've done it. So uh, Ernest Gold has a veto power over it. He, he wrote the melody, uh, Chapel Music, and Otto Priminger, the director of the film. And so far, all the lyrics that have been proposed have been uh, summarily dismissed. And, uh, and and so there won't be any words. Well, I just couldn't take that. So I, it was Christmas Eve in 59, and Shirley was begging me and my wife to quit listening to that Ferrani Teicher record and help her get the presents under the tree so we could go to bed. And, um, and I, I thought, I'm just trying to get an idea to submit to one of those other writers. I wasn't thinking of writing the lyric myself, but... I said, honey, just one more time, okay? For about the 40th time, I put the needle down on the record. Boom, 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 boom. I swear the words, this land is mine, came into my head right then. I got goosebumps, and I stopped. I said, that's the whole story of Israel. This land is mine, a personal, singular point of view, not trying to speak for millions of people over centuries. And and so I put the needle back on, bum, 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 ba, bum, 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 God gave this land to me. 
are the words that came to me. So I, I grabbed something and started writing in about 20 minutes. So take my hand, walk this land with me, though I'm just a man. When you are by my side, with the help of God, I know I can be strong. If I must fight, I'll fight to make this land our own. Until I die, this land is mine. And I turned over the card that, that I was, it was a Christmas card that I'd written those words on. So <laughs> I wound up getting up to the publisher and Ernest Gold and, and Otto Preminger. They all said that this, yes, these are the words. This land is mine. It's a personal declaration. And so I recorded it. And then uh, it went on to be recorded by Andy Williams and a, and a great many other people and by choral groups and so on. So recently, a couple of years ago, I was in Israel and the director of Yad Vashem, uh, Shiva, let's see, uh, wait a minute, she, she, no, not, uh, Shaya, Shaya ben Yehuda. And, uh, and he had tears in his eyes, a big burly guy, but he said, you don't know what those words you wrote mean to us here. I said, Shia, I think I do. I'm well versed in the whole history of the people of Israel of all these thousands of years, and I identify with everything truly Jewish and certainly about Israel. And so I do know what it's about. He said, well, we, uh, we have a campaign underway that we want every Jewish child in Israel to know those words. They may not be able to know this melody, but we want them to know those words that you wrote. And did you, you must have written them on something. Uh, would you be willing when you pass to let us have it to put on the wall of the righteous Gentile with Oscar Schindler and Corey Ten Boom and the other Christians who were so supportive of Israel, especially during Israel's darkest days? And I said, well, look, Shia, yeah, I'll give it to you right now, but I need to let you know I wrote those words on the back of a Christmas card. And he said, so much the better. We know that all of uh, our greatest supporters in the world are evangelical Christians. If it weren't for them right now, we might not exist because they support us in everything we do. Because, because we identify with, with Israel always, always have, always will. And we call ourselves adopted Jews adopted into the family of God's chosen people. So that's the story of how I wrote the words to Exodus, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of ever. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show, and I'm interviewing legendary entertainer Pat Boone, who's currently marking his 70th year in show business, singer, actor, songwriter, author, uh, a man who's left an indelible mark on various musical genres, uh, Pat, I recently had a very famous actor come visit me here in South Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was uh, told me he was a fan of my work. He was a, a patriot, a Christian. Uh, but uh, when I asked him where he wanted to have dinner, he said, "Well, could we could we go someplace you know where we maybe we won't be seen together?" Uh, I, I don't really understand this. What? One of the things I admire about you uh, is that you uh, have not been shy about your concerns regarding what's happening in this country, regarding the state of morality in America. I noticed in a recent interview with Fox Digital News, you decried what you said was a deterioration of values in the country, saying we are going down the tubes morally in every way. What, yeah. did, you, what did you mean? Well, I mean that all the things that, that made us who America is and was, the, the historian de Tocqueville said it best, America is great because America is good. 
America, if she ceases to be good, will cease to be great, which has been the story of all great civilizations in the past. Um, immorality creeps in and becomes the standard. In America, our country was based on the Bible. Uh, all of our leaders were church-going men. They were Bible-believing. In fact, in, in those early days where all the colleges that existed started out as Christian colleges, and if you didn't take a Bible and you didn't know the Bible thoroughly, you were not well-educated. <laughs> so that goes for Jefferson and and um, and Washington and Monroe and Adams, Ben Franklin. I mean, they all quoted the Bible, and it was mostly the Old Testament. But you know the big mistake that was made, Roger, was King James, when he, uh, in whatever it was, 14, 1500, he uh, had the Bible translated into King James English. And, of course, that's fine. It's lovely language. But he divided uh, all the prophets, everything, about the, the history of the people of Israel into the Old Testament. And then starting with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was the New Testament. And the Bible stayed divided all these years, which was the horrible mistake, because every word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the last book in the New Testament, every word written by Jews, for Jews, about Jews, about happenings in little Israel, about a Messiah who would come himself, a Jew, who would come to save as many of, of the Gentiles as well as would receive him. But he came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those prophets, all prophesied that that would happen. And even Moses said, God's going to send someone like me after me, and you are to hear to him. Who hear? You are to listen to him. I mean, the whole Bible and the, this nation was founded on the Bible. And as long as we tried to adhere in our Constitution and in our Declaration and so on uh, to the tenets of the Bible, as, as uh, Jefferson and Lincoln both said, if we depart from the one who made us who we are, then we will cease to be who we are. And that's it. The rules of morality come whole cloth from the Bible, what we call the Old and New Testaments, but it's just the Bible itself. And that's where we got our mores, that's where we got our principles. All men are created equal, endowed by their Creator, with certain inalienable uh, privileges among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not the guarantee of happiness, but equal right to pursue happiness. But it all goes back to the Creator and that to the Bible. <laughs> and so the further we get from the dictates of the Bible, which is where we get to love your neighbor as you love yourself, the golden rule, all these things are Bible. Now, books like Looking Out for Number One and and uh, Winning Through Intimidation and all these kind of books to how to get your way riding roughshod over whoever you have to ride over. It, these books become popular. And so I've now written my last book called If. It's just the one stark word, if. And it's in Genesis all the way through the Bible. There's not one blessing of God that doesn't come with an if. And I've, I've studied it, and I know it's true. That's why I call my book If. Because if we want God's blessing, and certainly those of us who still believe in God, however, well, I'll come back to that. 
if we still believe in God, then we want his blessing. But we're not going to get his blessing if we do not listen to what he says and try to live the way he says we should live, then uh, we're, we're going to miss it. Uh, so now, the, uh, the, the uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? The pollsters, Barna and Gallup, they're all saying that less than half of America, less than 50% of American people go to a church or a synagogue or a temple or pray, maybe pray sometimes. They don't know if anybody's listening. They don't know the Bible at all. And therefore, we are losing the basis for our principles who made us who we are. And as, long, as far as we go from those principles, that's where we will go. We will be like all the other nations who decided we know better than God. We'll run things ourselves. We'll, we'll leave him out of it <laughs> and ridicule him and if, even call Scripture hate speech. Those things are happening in our country. And... Uh, and people, you know, I've been kidded a lot for being Mr., you know, holier than now and that kind of stuff. I'm not. I'm just a practical guy, but I but I have learned in my own life, my family life, with my marriage of 67 years and four daughters and 16 grandkids and 17 great-grandkids and all the successes in this very improbable business, the entertainment business, all these things I attribute to simply the blessings of God. It makes me want to to love him more and to obey him and see if I could earn a couple more blessings. Well, I think it was Lincoln who said, the question is not is whether God is with us, but whether we are with God. You are so right. You are right. And, and, uh, and, and many other wonderful quotes like that that used to resonate and we all knew those quotes, <laughs> but now, now it's slipping away, and things that are abominable to God are celebrated as rights, and uh, and and that includes abortion and other things that, you know, I I say I'm all for abortion. I really am, as long as it takes place before conception. Uh, I like that. Uh, I noticed that you said uh, during this Fox Digital interview, which was really powerful, uh, you were commenting on children being taught now in class if they feel they're the wrong gender, maybe they can change over their want, and uh, they don't even need to tell their parents, nor do the teachers. You said it's changing American history. Speak well, to that it's for a more, moment. Well, it's worse than that. And getting back to our original tenet here, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy, first of all, and blasphemy is is speaking ill of God's spirit and God himself. That's blasphemy. God created man and woman. End of story. <laughs> and, and he did that through chromosomes. And the X chromosomes and the Y chromosomes determine the gender. And you can change the outward manifestations. You can lop off breasts. You can emasculate a man. You can create false uh, appendages, do what you want onto the external, but you cannot change the chromosomes that you were given at birth. So, you know, I, it, it's for people, human beings, to say, I, we know better than God. He made me a girl, but I'm not happy being a girl. Mom and Dad, can I be a boy? Why, sure, son, or boy, or daughter. I mean, what kind of parents don't want to uh, help, the, help the child go through, go through whatever confusion 
he or she, she may have and learn them, uh, teach them. <laughs> I'm trying to say too much too quick, Roger, but uh, the parents need to learn how to teach their child to accept and to be proud of the way God created them. After all, the Bible says we're created in His image, so in some fashion each of us bears some resemblance to God and the way we are created. And that's even if we have uh, we have uh, either shortcomings or we have uh, maladies and we're born, sometimes people are, and they're born looking different. There's something about their their soul, their spirit, that still bears God's image, and certainly their gender is a vital, unchangeable part of that. Uh, in a minute, we're going to talk about your exciting new country music project, Country Jubilee, but as I told you uh, before the interview today, the first time I ever saw you appear was at a rally for Barry Goldwater in 1964 in Southern California. Uh, and you made a great comment. You said you actually met and knew Dwight Eisenhower. He was elected the year I was born. How many American presidents have you met, Pat? Well, I've met all, but since since Truman, I've not only met all of them, but also hobnobbed in one way or another. I was the uh, chairman, uh, entertainment chairman of the Easter Seal Telethon for 18 years. And so every year I would bring the Easter Seal poster child to the White House. But when I was in college at Columbia and Eisenhower had been president of Columbia before he became president of the U.S., and uh, I was in his office. I was a, Even back then, I was chairman of uh, American Bible Week, and I was having some hit records while I was in college at Columbia. And so I was in his office. And I got a picture on my wall of him with a startled look on his face. He said uh, uh, I was handing him a brand new Bible. You know, he was very familiar with the Bible, and uh, but this was for him and Chairman of Bible Week. And uh, and he says, uh, "You you're married? Are you in college?" I said, "Yes." And I understand you have a child. I said, "I've got four, Mr. President, four daughters," and and that's the startled look on his face. I graduated at age 23. Wife and I, Shirley, were both 23. I was on the cover of TV Guide, my cap and gown, because of the Pat Boone Chevy show, which was uh, on ABC television. And, uh, and, and I had movies and records and all that happening at the same time. And you open up the TV Guide, and there's a picture of Shirley and me and our four little girls. And we're 23. So life took off in a big hurry, <laughs> and it really hasn't ever slowed down. Many people don't know this, but uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, was the only president to be rebaptized in the White House. Uh, he was such a man of faith. I think he is greatly underrated as a president. We had unprecedented peace and prosperity. Oh, we uh, did. And, uh, and, and I, I didn't know that, Roger. I'm, you've added to my knowledge, my folklore. I, I, I will be proud forever to know that he was baptized again. And, of course, Truman was the one that that committed the United States to support the nation, the new nation of Israel, uh, when all of his advisors were urging him to not do that. You know, we need the arrows, we need the oil, don't, don't let this little upstart group of people. But Truman knew his Bible, and he knew, and in fact, a haberdasher, I think whose name was 
Ben, I forget what his last name was, came to the White House to be with the president while he was Truman, while he was having to make that that really important decision. And he reminded him of what the Bible said. God said Israel would be a nation again and bring them back together. You need to vote for them, Mr. President. And when when the door to the Oval Office opened, Truman said, the United States will side with Israel. And it's never backed away. Yeah, it is very sad. I think, sadly, the anti-communist, pro-America, pro-capitalism, pro-free enterprise Democratic Party of John F. Kennedy and Harry Truman, I don't think that party uh, exists anymore. Just just my opinion. Let's, uh, Folks, if you're just tuning in, uh, this is The Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. You can listen to us worldwide on WABCRadio.com. Or if you're in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, you can tune into us at 770 on the AM dial. Uh, I'm speaking with legendary entertainer, singer, actor, songwriter, author, Christian, uh, and uh, proud American Pat Boone. I am so honored, Pat, to have you on the show. I want to talk about uh, your new Milestone Country Music Project. Yeah, yeah, Country Jubilee. Uh, Mm -hmm. This album, as I understand it, uh, is 26 tracks uh, that uh, on your own gold label, uh, mm-hmm. you're the executive producer. Dana McElwain is the producer. Scheduled for release on September eighth, twenty twenty three. I am uh, I am going to uh, tell folks where they can get it. But tell us about this incredible album. Yeah, I'm proud to do it, Roger. Uh, it is unique. There's never been an album like it. I can say. And I'm hoping the um, country, when the country awards come around, will pay some attention to this. Because country artists don't generally do each other's songs. That's just, they don't do that. If if, uh, if uh, George Jones has a big hit, well, that's his song. If Eddie Arnold has a big song, that's his. They don't do it. But I, all along the, the way, have been recording country songs in my own albums. I've been... No, I'm not known as a country artist, but I am a country guy. And I was born in Jacksonville, raised in Nashville. And I milked our family cow, Rosemary, before I would go to school in high school to sit next to the white woman I was to be my wife, Shirley Foley, who was the daughter of Red Foley, the great country artist, Hall of Fame. So I've, I've been recording country songs all these years. So now I have created an album of 26 million selling songs by Hank Williams and, and uh, Roy Acuff and George Jones and Red Foley and on and on and on, Eddie Arnold. All these songs, including Tennessee Waltz, by the way, I sing. I do a very good job of singing my own state song, Tennessee Waltz. But there, nobody has ever done this. Uh, 20, 26 million selling songs in one album sung by the same artist. And I think I do a whale of a job, if I do say, <laughs> singing all these songs. And if anybody in the sound of our voices now loves country music, they've got to love this album because it's the cream of the crop, million-selling songs. I do Kalijah, since the last time you heard that, and uh, Your Cheating Heart, Hank Williams, and and uh, Make the World Go Away, um, Eddie Arnold, and all of these other great songs. Wolverton Mountain and and um, just all the big hits that you ever want to hear done extremely well with orchestra and chorus by one artist. And it's just never been an album like it. So 
here I am. I'm 89 and doing fine. <laughs> and and, uh, and I've got hit records, Grits, which is, I wrote, it came to me in a dream, Roger. I dreamed that I was having a big country hit. And unlike most dreams, I came out of the dream with still the first verse of that song. Grits, grits, bestest food there is, country caviar, Tennessee foie gras, hey, grits, grits, bestest food there is, keep your fancy food, give me my grits. And he goes over there to make fun of his cargo, them snails have got to go, pate, what is that anyway? And... Um, and and just give me grits, red eye gravy, and and ham, and some eggs, and give me my grits. So that is a hit. So is I hope the album is going to be. But now nobody is buying records today, except now there's a rebirth of the uh, vinyl player, and more and more people they still want to hear records, and uh, instead of CDs. And, of course, even CDs are vanishing. you got to go to the Internet and become a tech whiz, and then maybe you can hear whatever you want free, almost. But the uh, the singers and the writers and the publishers get zip, almost nothing for them. So I'm hoping that with this album, it's not just a hit album for me, but I'm hoping to remind people of why America is called a country because it started out as country. Our presidents, and, and, uh, and certainly Jefferson and, and uh, Washington and, and uh, Monroe and Adams, they were farmers. And the, the militia that beat the British were farmers. They picked up their, their guns and their pitchforks and they went out to fight and, and they helped create America. It was, it was what was happening in the countryside among country people who were reading the Bibles and going to church and trying to live the lives that you read about and that are promoted in that old Bible. And so that was country life, which is what we came to call American life. But it was originally country life. Uh, Folks, you can get a country jubilee, which is uh, Pat Boone's unique interpretation of over 25 country classics, including five of his own top 100 country recordings by going to goldenlabelartists.com. Goldenlabelartists.com. You can pre-order that now. Pat, is my understanding this has a brand new rendition of your classic and beloved duet and number one billboard hit, You and I, featuring the incomparable Crystal Gale. I I cannot wait to hear this. Uh, You know what? Uh, Roger, I have yet to talk to anybody of any age who, when I mention that song, doesn't say, hey, I love that song. I mean, young people, old people, country fans, opera, but they they all love that song. So Crystal Gale and Eddie Rabbit had recorded it. It was a Grammy winner, million seller, about 40 years ago. Well, Crystal still looks beautiful, and she sings beautiful. And uh, and so she and Warner Brothers, I think, decided they wanted to... to redo that record and put it out again. But Eddie Rabbit's been gone 20 years, so uh, they elected me to sing with her, and so I do it. And uh, my own grandkids, I just saw a text today from one of my grandkids saying that she was weeping as she heard me sing this song with Crystal Gale because uh, Crystal was happy to do this too. We dedicated it to my wife, Shirley because the last lines in the song 
uh, looks like we made it, you and I. And uh, we've made it. And it's, it's called Gold Label, by the way, not Golden Label, but Gold Label. That's close enough. And, yes, I, I'm so proud to have sung that with Crystal because she's, I say, beautiful inside and out and still sings great. And I think we made a beautiful new version of that song. Uh, so, folks, Pat Boone returns to his country music roots, uh, exemplifying his enduring passion for country music and his dedication to connecting with a whole new audience through the power of these beloved classics. Country Jubilee is a testimony to Pat Boone's unwavering talent, his versatility, his ability to transcend generations and genres. This album truly sounds like a must-have addition for any music enthusiast collection. We're out of time, very sadly, because I could talk to you all day. I want to thank I want to thank Icon, a great American patriot, great Christian, uh, and great role model uh, for so many in show business today. Pat Boone for joining us right here on the Roger Stone Show. Well, I couldn't wish anybody, including you, Roger, more happiness than I've enjoyed in this life. So as far as I'm concerned, I must have done something right because <laughs> I wish it all on everybody else. Well, God bless you. God bless you, and thank you for joining us on Thanks, the Roger, Roger. Stone Show. Thank you. Bye.